29 through 34. Let me pray before we read from God's word. Holy God, we believe that this is your word, inspired uh, authoritatively, inerrantly, and infallibly to your prophets and apostles. And we pray that as we hear your word read, that it would pierce our hearts so that we might understand it, believe it, love it, and live it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 29 through 34. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of, the God, a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go for children's worship and for nursery, Miss Brittany and our volunteers will uh, be happy to lead them over to the other building. And for the other kids who are remaining, our older kids, I have a, I have a question for you. I need your help. So you can stop drawing and fill in your puzzle sheets for a second. You can all, let me see all the little eyes up here in addition to the, to the big grown-up eyes. Kids, what does it mean to reveal something? Madeline, what does it mean to reveal something? Hmm? That's right. If something is hidden, you show it. You make it uh, visible to everybody. So, you know, maybe it's a surprise. You know, it's a surprise party. You're all hidden. When you reveal yourselves, you jump out and you yell, surprise. We are showing you that we're here. So think about this, kids and grown-ups. In the scripture we just read, John the Baptist said this, For this purpose I came baptizing with water. For this purpose, that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. What's the baptizer saying? He's saying that's the whole point of my ministry. All the preaching, all the baptizing, all the dressing weird, all the standing out here in the wilderness, even his eventual martyrdom, all of it had one supreme goal... To reveal Jesus to Israel. To reveal something, as Madeline has taught us, means to uncover it. To portray it clearly. To make it known. The Baptist's job was to tell Israel, who is Jesus and why did Jesus come? Now, two weeks ago, we talked in depth about who is Jesus. What does it mean that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God? The Baptist came to reveal that, to reveal who Jesus was to Israel. But the question I want to ask today is, why did he come? Why did the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, why did the Son of God, the one who has a special relationship with God, who was God himself, why did Jesus come, according to John the Baptist? So John the Baptist points out two activities, two things that Jesus was going to do When he came to the earth. On the one hand, Jesus came to take something away, but then Jesus came to give 
something. Jesus came to earth to extract something and then to implant something. So let's look at the first activity of Jesus, that extracting work. There's blanks in your worship guide. It's been like eight weeks, folks. If you like to take notes, you want to fill in your blanks, here's the first blank in your worship guide. Jesus came to take away sin from the whole world. That's in the back of your worship guide. I don't know if I said that. Jesus came to take away sin from the whole world. Look at verse 29 again. The next day, so we've been seeing this. John in this first chapter is giving like the first week of Jesus' ministry. He says, the first day, then the next day, then the next day. So here we are on day three of Jesus' ministry. And it was day two, actually. Um, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this language of taking away the sin of the world, this is so commonplace in evangelical theology, really in broad Christian theology, that it would be easy to breeze past this verse, to not notice it, and to not see its beauty, complexity, and importance. For starters, this is the first time in John's gospel that we actually see the word sin used. Back in the prologue, in the first 18 verses, John the Apostle said that Jesus, the word, was filled with Life And that life was the light of men. And he's going to enter into the world's darkness. And people are going to interact with this light. Well, Jesus, or John is saying is the darkness that pervades all of us, that fills the earth and messes things up and even twists us up. What is that darkness? And he gives it a word. He gives it a name. This darkness is sin. But notice how the Baptist speaks about it. When he talks about sin... He's not talking about the individual acts of people. Kids, when we think about sin, what do we think about? We think about things we do that are wrong, like when we disobey our parents or we hit our siblings or we yell in anger, right? We think about sin as these individual actions, but that's not how John's talking about it. Look again at the text, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's Jesus coming to take away? He's coming to take away sin, singular, not plural, from the world. That's Jesus' first intention in coming. To remove the global, worldwide scourge that is sin. What does that teach us about sin? I don't think it's any surprise any of you here. We're a very conservative church. And as theologically conservative Christians, we tend to think about sin in very moral, individualistic terms, right? And when you interact with our more theologically liberal brothers and sisters, they talk more about communal sins, systemic sins, but rarely individual sins that we have that need to be forgiven and redeemed. Both groups, though, I think tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And on our side of things, in talking about sin as this very moral, very individualistic sort of thing, we often forget about the all-encompassing effects of sin. Here's your next blank. Sin is not only an individual problem. It impacts communities, social systems, indeed the whole globe. It's not just an individual problem. It impacts communities, social systems, Indeed, the whole globe. To say it in a different way, no sin happens in a vacuum. 
No sin just kind of happens over in this tucked away corner of your life or your world and doesn't have an impact on other people and other things. When I, as an individual, sins, it affects the communities that I inhabit. It affects the people around me, and it snowballs. We develop our own sinful habits, addictions, thought patterns, and idolatries, and then what do we do with them? We pass them on to our kids. We pass them on to our friends in the way we talk and think and act. We influence them. We pass it on to our companies and our coworkers, especially if you're in a position of leadership. We run this risk. And eventually what happens is our sin becomes ingrained and assumed, even promoted in our homes in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. A lot of conservative Christians in the last couple of years have been really, really angsty about the language of systemic sin because they think if I agree that there are systemic sins, that that I'm agreeing with critical race theory, uh, I'll bite. Let's, Let's think about it for a second. I'm confident that racism is deeply ingrained in the way a lot of people think. And you know why I say that? I grew up that way. My family of origin and my extended family, racism was very much a part of the way people thought, the way people talked, and the way they acted. That was my experience. I experienced systemic racism. It was passed on to me, and it's been something that I have been repenting of and working through for a long time as a Christian. So it wouldn't surprise me to see that same sin taking root in other families, in other communities, and in other organizations as well. The notion, though, of systemic sin more broadly is very familiar to me, biblically and experientially. Racism is not the only sin that people cherish, embody, and pass on. I think plenty, if not most, Christian communities in our country have a systemic gluttony problem that we don't talk about. We, we celebrated. I was at a Presbytery meeting just this weekend. I saw the eating that happened there. I participated in it probably to a, to a sinful extent. While we're at it, let's not pretend that the love of money, the love of recreation, and the love of unique experiences hasn't infiltrated the way that we think, talk, and disciple our children. Here's what I'm getting at. Sin's not just something you do for a little thrill. Sin is not a secret thing that stays secret and hurts nobody. Now, here's your next blank. Sin is a disease that spreads. Sin is a disease that spreads. And if you try to justify it or you try to ignore it, it only ravages your community more to the point that it becomes endemic, right? It's a disease that spreads. And if we act like it ain't there or we try to justify it, it ravages our communities until it becomes endemic. And we don't even know we have the problem anymore. So the Baptist, he doesn't go to great lengths to describe sin or to define sin. But he does treat sin like it's this big, monolithic, global problem on planet Earth that we can't handle and we can't fix. We've got this tumor. It's throughout the world. And we can't get it out of us. Therefore, Jesus is going to get it out. Jesus is going to come and extract it. Here's your next blank. Jesus' intention as the Lamb of God is to remove the world's monolithic sin problem. 
As the Lamb of God, he's going to come and he's going to get this sin out at its most individual level, its most communal level, its most global level. Jesus is coming to get the sin out. That's the first reason that he came. To rip that nasty tumor out of the individual, but also out of communities, systems, and indeed the whole world. Jesus has come to do surgery on the whole world. But how? What's the mechanism and the means by which Jesus is going to remove sin? For example, like the way you get a splinter out of a kid's finger is very different from how you remove an impacted tooth. And that's very different from how you remove a tumor. So what's Dr. Jesus going to do to get this mess out of me? Out of my family, out of this church, out of our town, out of our country, out of our world. Well, the Baptist tells us somewhat cryptically by calling Jesus a name. A title that we haven't heard yet in this gospel. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God. As Christian readers who have a very cross-centered gospel, it'd be easy to say, oh, well... He's talking about the cross, right? Jesus died like a lamb. He he was a sacrificial lamb who removes sin from us. Substitutionary atonement. Through that means Jesus is going to remove sin. But that may not be what the Baptist actually means. Why not? Well, John the Baptist doesn't have his New Testament yet. So if we want to understand what John's saying, we have to look backwards at the Old Testament. And there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that he could be referring to. He might be saying that Jesus is like the Passover lamb who died to protect Israel from God's wrath. He could be comparing Jesus to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Additionally, in the centuries before Jesus' arrival, this title, the Lamb of God, among rabbis in Judaism, had taken on a totally different meaning. I'm going to save us time. I I cut two pages out of my sermon by not going into all three of those in depth. You can thank me later. I'll just tell you what I think he means. Here's your next blank. The means by which Jesus removes sin is twofold. His blood and his second coming in judgment. These are the two means by which Jesus is going to get sin out of the world. His blood and his second coming in judgment. So all of those Old Testament sheep, even if you go to Abraham and Isaac, right? Every one of them, there's blood. In every example of those Old Testament sheep. In the process of extracting sin from individuals, communities, and the world, Jesus was going to shed his blood. John knew that much. But where am I getting this talk about the second coming in judgment? I didn't mention that in those other passages. Well, I'm cheating and going to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Todd was very pure in his preaching last week. He didn't cheat and go to the other Gospels, but I'm going to cheat. So hold your finger in John 1 and turn with me to Matthew 3. I told Todd last week he could probably just quit his job and become a preacher. That was, uh, God was working powerfully through him last week. That was awesome. Matthew chapter 3. Verses 11 and 12. So we see John the Baptist preaching here, a recording of another sermon of his or some other uh, person's recollection of it. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. We're going to get a little more heat from the Baptist in, in chapter 3 of Matthew. He says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So what does John say in Matthew 3 Jesus is going to come to do? He's going to come to judge. He's going to separate his people, the ones from whom he has ripped out sin, the ones he has made righteous. He's going to separate them from the ones that still have sin. They're going to be destroyed. So that's the second part of how Jesus is going to get sin out of the world, judgment. Now, the Baptists probably didn't know that Jesus was going to come one time to save and a second time to judge, and I think he gets a pass on that. But as post-resurrection, post-Pentecost Christians, we're privy to more information. And here's the bottom line. Jesus is going to get the sin out one way or another. Jesus came to set you free as an individual from your sin. He came to set your homes free from sin. He came to set this town and your workplace, the whole world from sin. But the way he's going to do it is through his blood, through salvation, or eventually through judgment. And so as a theologically, again, as a theologically conservative evangelical, this is how I respond to the problem of systemic sin. The idea of systemic sin doesn't freak me out. And I may disagree with your understanding of it, but when I see sinful patterns in homes, communities, organizations, here's where I tend to agree, disagree with people. But how do we fix it? How do we extract this systemic sin? How do we change it? And the only real, meaningful, lasting answer is Jesus. Either Jesus can be judged for your sin on the cross... Or you can be judged for your sin. And either way, the sin is going to be dealt with. The stain on creation will be removed. The cancer will be extracted. Either through your justification and sanctification through faith or through destruction. So the Baptist has an edge to him, doesn't he? But it's not all doom and gloom, though, and certainly not in the Gospel of John. Uh, So here's your next point. All of this means something good. (laughs) For your future and for the future of the world. And what is the good news? God can be in fellowship with both. God can be in fellowship with you. And God can be in fellowship with the world. And in fact, that's where the world is headed. One day God is going to live with man in an unmediated fashion. God is going to fill and renew this earth. Because Jesus has taken the sin out. Because he's taken the sin out, we can have a relationship with God. So that was Jesus' first intent for coming, and this is a good thing, a hopeful thing for you, a hopeful thing for the world, a hopeful thing for the future. We can be restored to God. We can know his love because Jesus has come. So Jesus has come to take away sin from the whole world, but I don't think that surprises any of you whatsoever. You've heard that sermon before. You could probably write it yourself, but hopefully it's a good gospel reminder. This idea that Jesus came to take away sin from top to bottom. But what's the second thing he came to do? What did he come to give? After all, the Baptist said he came to take away something, but also to give something. Here's your next blank. Jesus came to give the Spirit to his people. He came to give the Holy Spirit to his people. Look now, back in John 1, you may have to flip back, John 1, verse 32. So John, as he's reflecting on how he knew Jesus was the one who would be mightier than him, the one who was before him, who was preeminent and indeed was God, he says in verse 32, And John the Baptist bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he 
who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, we find here an idea that is no less commonplace in evangelical theology or more broadly in Christian theology, but the baptism of the Spirit is a more controversial uh, idea thanks to our, our, our more Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters. So people will disagree on when the baptism of the Spirit happens, how the baptism of the Spirit happens, etc. So what is it? What's my take on this? And I, This is what I believe the Bible's take on it is. Again, rather than looking forward to the New Testament, to Pentecost and later texts, let's look backwards at what John might have seen as the Old Testament precedent for uh, baptism of the Spirit. Here's your next blank. In the Old Testament, God made promises about giving his Holy Spirit for communal and individual transformation. In the Old Testament, God made these promises. He says, I'm going to transform you as an individual. I'm going to transform you as a community through the giving of my spirit. Again, as postmodern Westerners, we tend to think in very individualistic terms. When we think about the baptism of the spirit, we think, oh, the spirit is given to me so that he can live uh, in me and so that he can transform me uh, just as we think about sin. Oh, sin is what I do and it impacts me. But in God's wisdom, God who understands everything much better than we do from his perspective, the individual is wrapped up in the community. And he aims to transform not just you. He wants to change your home. Hear that? When you look at your home, you see the peace of God, the joy of God, the patience of God. Of God, permeating those relationships, permeating those people. He wants to change your workplace as people there submit to Him and know the Holy Spirit so that those relationships change and the glory of God shines. He wants to change St. Tammany so that it's more and more like the kingdom of God. He aims to knit you up into a new kingdom community. It lives different from the communities around us. So the people look at you and say, what about you weirdos? But I like what I see, generally speaking. Jesus came to transform not just you, but the communities that you inhabit. And through them to transform the world. Let's look at one of these Old Testament passages. We're going to look at a text from Ezekiel. It's in your worship guide. And as we're reading it, I want you to take note of this. Every time that he uses the word you... In the Hebrew, it's actually a plural. Y'all. Ezekiel's being very southern in this text. Let's, uh, let's follow along as I read it, and I will editorialize as I go. Ezekiel 36. Remember, Todd talked last week about how Israel had been sent away into exile in Babylon and Assyria. And they were restored physically, geographically, to the promised land. But it was like they were hungover spiritually. Their hearts hadn't returned from exile yet. And so we see that kind of promise inherent here. Uh, I will take y'all from the nations and gather y'all from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on y'all and you all shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. We see some extracting happening here, right? And I will give you y'all. This is very... Interesting. I will give y'all a new heart, singular, and a new spirit, singular. 
I will put in y'all. And I will remove the heart of stone singular from y'all's flesh and give y'all a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within y'all, or it can be translated among you all, and cause you all to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Y'all shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and y'all shall be my people. And I will be your God. I think this is one of the best texts to talk about the baptism of the Spirit. We see this cleansing work that Jesus is going to do, but also him giving us something, namely his Holy Spirit, that transforms us individually and transforms our community. So what does this promise mean to which the Baptist is referring? Here's your next two blanks in your worship guide. The promise of the Spirit meant two things. First, personal and community holiness. He wants to make you holy as an individual, and he wants to make the people around you holy. So he promises personal and community holiness. And secondly, he's promising the eschatological restoration of God's people. Eschatological eschatons, talking about the end of times. There's something about the giving of the Spirit and the transforming of God's people that ushers in the end of days. He's talking about being restored to the promised land, Israel being brought back, right? So Jesus, why did he come? He came to take away sin from the world, to remove this big scourge, but he's also come to make his people holy, as he is holy, both as individuals and as a community, and he's come to prepare us for the end of the days, to restore us for the day when Jesus will come back to judge and to finish the job. As Todd put it, oh, I already said this, I'll keep moving on. I keep referring to Todd, you're just a great preacher, man, I can't, I can't help myself. So when the Baptist says... That Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. Here's the full force of his message. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. Yes. But this Jesus, the Lamb of God, he's come to baptize you, to cleanse you, but not externally with water. That's not how he's going to wash you. He's come to cleanse you within. Yeah, he's going to take away your sin, but then he's going to give you, the individual, a new heart, a new spirit. God himself is going to come and live in you to transform you. And he's not just going to be in you. He's going to be around you and among you so that when you as a people are together, you are interacting with God. They're being transformed by his presence so that we will obey him. The promise of the Spirit is a promise of personal and community holiness that ushers in the end of all things. And when judgment comes, when Christ returns, there will be a people unified, a bride made holy, a kingdom ready for their king's return. And as much as I love this is an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel, it reminds me of another one that I think gets a lot less press than it ought to. Uh, and it's Exodus chapter uh, 19. But this is, here's your next point before we get to it. The promise of the Spirit refers us back to an older promise that God's people would be a kingdom of priests. Back in Exodus 19, he said you're going to be a kingdom of priests. So when you think about priests, whether priests in Israel, priests in the Roman Catholic or Anglican traditions, or even if you think about pastors, there's kind of this assumption about priests that they are kind of this really holy cast of people. They're just, a, they're just a step above the rest of us. They've reached some kind of holiness that's just not realistic for regular folks like us. It takes a special kind of holiness if you're going to be a priest or a pastor. I know you don't think that if you know me well. But in fact, 
God wants all of his people, the whole community, to be that holy. To be a priest of God. And what does a priest do? A priest is someone who so knows God, who's so connected with God, that's so transformed by God, that if somebody wants to know God, they can go to him and meet God. This priest is a connection point between the visible and the invisible, between the created and the creator. I can go to this priest, and this priest can help me to know the one true God who made all things. From Exodus 19, this isn't like New Testament stuff. From Exodus 19, God is saying, this is the kind of people I want to make a kingdom of priests. Look in your worship guide. So this is right when they arrived at Sinai. This is the first thing he says when they come out of Egypt. Look at it. Yahweh called to Moses out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say, here's the first message to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Who are the... I'm I'm going off. I'm just too excited this morning. I love these texts. Who were the priests in the Old Testament? What tribe? Levites. Do you remember why? Anybody? It's crazy. So what happens after this? So, so Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? That's right. Yeah. So what happens while Moses is up the mountain 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, they worship an idol. They, they build a golden calf. And Aaron says, this is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. Worship him. So when Moses comes down the mountain, there's uh, people worshiping here. And uh, he smashes the, uh, the, the commandments. And Moses says, all those who are for the Lord, come to me. Right? Remember this? Is it, or this is later. I'm, I, this is why I shouldn't go off text. I think, I'm thinking I'm in Exodus 24. Regardless of what happens. He says, who's faithful to the Lord? And the only people that show up are the Levites. And he says, I want you to go through here and kill everybody that's, that's commit, participating in idolatry until they repent. The Levites go and kill everybody and say, okay, you guys can be the priests now. It was because sin infiltrated the community that they failed to be a kingdom of priests. And the people who they chose to be the priests were the ones that hadn't been swept away in the idolatry, right? Now, Jesus has come. He's died. He's taken sin away from his people. This is the goal, that once again we would be a kingdom of priests. This is why the reformers rejected the priestly class in the Roman Catholic Church. Because there's no difference in holiness between a priest or a minister of the gospel, and anyone else. In fact, God called every one of us to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and made holy so that we can be the person through whom someone else sees the face of God. This is what Jesus intends to do in you, through you, and through us as a community, as an individual. God wants to make you holy, like holy like a priest holy, and then he wants to put you in league with a whole other bunch of priests in this community who together help the world to know God, what a priest does. And in so doing, this community and the broader kingdom community, our other brothers and sisters, all of these priests of God are together through this work going to usher in the end of all things. So here's the question. Is that how you think of yourself? When you wake up on Monday morning, you're getting ready for work. You're getting ready to get the kids to school. 
or you got your, your, your plans for the day, do you expect holiness from yourself? Because God lives in you and with you. He's before you and behind you to transform you and to lead you into a life of holiness. Is that how you see yourself? Do you view yourself as the means and the channel for the people around you to see God and to know God? Do you view this community as an essential part of the ushering in of the end of all things? Do you see us playing a part in bringing God's kingdom on earth and leading us to Jesus' return? And do you see yourself as a key member of this community, as a part of God's consummation of all things? And you might look at yourself and say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not good with my words. In Sunday school, we're talking about that. Sharing the gospel is essential, absolutely essential. And if you've got kids or people like under your authority, you should definitely be telling those people about Jesus. And if you're gifted as an evangelist, you should definitely be telling those people about Jesus. But everybody can pray. Everyone can be hospitable to the outcast, the forgotten, the grieving, the poor. We can embody the character of God and the choices that we make. Now, often that means saying no to ourselves. But we can embody the love of God and we can embody the holiness of God everywhere we go and people can meet God and experience God in those ways. But I don't think we think of ourselves that way. People called to be holy. People called to be the means to share the character of God. But that's what Jesus came to do. He came to take away the sin of the whole world and then to give the Spirit to his people. And while I think you're very confident about the taking away sin... I wonder how much you really believe that Jesus came to give you the Spirit and to transform you completely. But why did John, the author of this book, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, why did he write this gospel? He told us in chapter 20. He said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And what he's defining here is the kind of life that he intends to cultivate in each of us. He wants to make you a holy priest of God. Here's your next blank. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, a holy priestly life is the kind of life that you can expect and pursue. A holy priestly life is the kind of life that you can expect and pursue. So how do you think about yourself? What do you expect from yourself spiritually? And what do you expect God to do in your relationships, especially with other spirit-filled people? What do you expect of us as a family, as a community? What do you expect to happen in us, among us, and through us? Because Jesus came to take away sin from the whole world and to give the spirit to his people. So are we expecting that and hoping for that? That's why he came. In closing, I want to encourage you to respond to this good news in two ways. First, here's your next blank. Deny the lies that you hear that contradict this truth. There are lots of lies you hear about this. Deny the lies that contradict this truth about you personally, individually. The lies about this community, the church more broadly as well. And reject the lies about the world as well. Because what narratives do we usually recite to ourselves? Not that Jesus wants to transform me into a holy priest of God here to introduce God to the world. No. 
The narratives we usually repeat to ourselves are that we are unlovable, broken, rotten, sinful, filthy outcasts that just can't do better, won't do better. That's one narrative. Another narrative is if we could just be true to ourselves and really look within, we can find the, the goodness within to bring out, well, that's, we know that's not biblical at all. Another narrative is we can fix all this sin individually and globally and systemically through education and regulation and some new legislation. I, I don't think that works either. Jesus, through his blood and through his second coming, is taking away sin and its power from us, his dominion over us, and then he's promised to transform us through his Holy Spirit. But where do we hear these other narratives? Where do we pick these up? Mostly we hear it from ourselves and from others, but I think at the heart of it is an underdeveloped theology of the Spirit, something that John's going to help us with as we go through this gospel. God lives within you, Christian. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? The Holy Spirit hovered over the chaotic primordial waters. That God that restrained the chaos of that moment is the God that inhabits you. The one who brought order and beauty out of the chaos of that unformed mass in Genesis 1. Look at the oceans. Look at the tides. Look at the mountains. That same transformer and restrainer of chaos is the one who lives within you. Do we realize that? Do we believe that? In the spirit, every one of you, from youngest to oldest, male or female, no matter your struggle, your doubt, your sin, we all have the same capacity in God's family. We are all priests to God. Through his Holy Spirit. So if you begin to deny the lies that you tell yourself and that you hear from others. And you start to believe the truth. Well what then? Here's your last blank. Pray. Pray for this transformation. And then fight to embody it. Personally, relationally, and progressively. You want to see progress. You want to see growth in yourself and in your relationships toward this goal. So pray for it and fight to embody it. Let me use some big words for a second. Todd, I think you were the person I first heard it put this way. You should just preach more often, I think. Justification is monergistic. But sanctification is synergistic. Justification is monergistic. Sanctification is synergistic. That's for the theology nerds. Let's unpack that. Justification, our salvation, the sin tumor being ripped from us through faith. That is the work of God alone. God is the one who calls us, who convicts us of sin. He's the one who regenerates us. He brings a dead man back to life. Our only part in the process is believing him. And what does that mean? Falling into his arms. Collapsing into his promise. That's our part in justification. It is his work, mono ergos, monergistic. But sanctification, your growth in holiness, your embodying of this priestly call, you have a part to play. It is synergistic. It is not a mono ergos, it is a soon sin together work. If you don't expect yourself, 
to grow in holiness, to obey? You won't. If you don't expect yourself to be holy, you don't believe the promise. You're not going to want it. You're not going to fight for it. You're not going to pray for it. You're not going to co-labor with your brothers and sisters for it. We have to commit ourselves to each other's holiness. We have to talk to each other about our holiness or lack thereof. That's why the scriptures say, confess your sins to one another and not even to one priest. Why? Because we're all priests. Confess your sins to each other. Labor for holiness together. And if you don't do this, if you don't believe it, the promise, and then pursue it individually and together through prayer and through these relationships, you ain't going to get there. And we ain't going to get there. In my experience, though, at least three-quarters of the battle is what you believe. The sanctification is 100% on justification with sanctification. Do you believe that Jesus came to take away sin from the world and to give his spirit to his people? Do you believe that he intends to transform you into a holy priest of God? If you believe that, if you rest in that and hope for that, I find that faith converts itself into a prayerful pursuit and embodiment of a new way of holy life in community with others. So brothers and sisters, let's heed the Baptist's message. Jesus came to take away sin from the whole world and to give his spirit to his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for yourself? Do you believe that for your home? Do you believe that for this community and for this world and are you pursuing it with your whole life these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ and the son of god and that by believing you might have that kind of life father we thank you for your word Oh, we thank you for the Old Testament. What a treasure trove of truth and promises that when we read them and meditate on them, they just give us such life and such hope that this broken world and my own broken flesh, that we can be made new. That we can not just be forgiven of sin, but that the dominion and power of sin over us can be ripped out of us and that we can be like Jesus so that we live like Jesus. He's our priest. God, I love these people here in this room and I've seen your spirits work in them. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill them and that you would transform them hand over fist. These people would more and more every day as they pray as they pursue holiness and as they do it together, that you would help these people to live and to love like our great priest, Jesus. It's in his powerful name that we pray, hopefully and thankfully. Amen.